Reading is just a habit you gotta form in all of life. Books don't change people's sentences. Reading good, solid, reformed, Puritan literature, reading especially the classics, that's had the biggest impact on my life. Good day and welcome to a, another episode of the Reformers Bookcast, uh, a podcast put on by Reformers Bookshop. My name is Tom Eglinton, the manager here at Reformers, and today we have Dr. Tom Nettles joining us. Thanks for coming on the show, Tom. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, now, Tom, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself before we, we jump into the, the book that you've written? Oh, well, I, I'm a Southern Baptist. I was born and reared in a Southern Baptist congregation. Uh, made a profession of faith very early in my life, but then I really wasn't truly converted until after one year of seminary. I had a six-year struggle with issues of assurance and uh, things like that, but was uh, seeking to find that assurance by progressively going deeper into Christian ministry ideas and finally went to seminary right after my wife and I got married. And after my first year in seminary, the Lord opened my eyes to see the reality of Christ's redemptive work. I had been in a mode of seeing Christ as the giver of purpose, which he, of course, is. Uh, but that was the big big thing. I wanted purpose. I wanted Christ to give me purpose. But I'd never really seen very clearly the, the nature of his redemptive work as it related to my sin. And so the Lord saved me that year. Very soon after that, I began to ask, well, you know, what happened I, why didn't all these other things work when I pray, Lord, if I'm not saved, save me now and that sort of thing. And, mm. and I began to read uh, theology and catechisms and confessions of faith and uh, discovered within the Reformed faith the answer, the explanation of what had actually happened. When I began to read on regeneration and effectual calling and those kinds of things, I could trace out sort of like a a six-year time or seven-year time of what we might call prevenient grace that then issued in an effectual uh, calling, com- real regeneration. So uh, after that, I was tremendously interested. Uh, I had to re-examine my call. Was I in the right place? Yeah. In seminary? And I came to believe that God providentially had placed me there, that he had not wasted time in my life. So I, I studied, gave myself to it, probably studied harder than I ever had in my life. And uh, fell in, anyway, just loved theology, loved biblical exposition, and eventually decided to go into church history as a, as a major. And okay. then as I was completing my dissertation, Southwestern Seminary invited me to teach. I taught there for six and a half years. I taught at another school for about seven years. I taught at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School for eight years. And Then in 97, I came to Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville and taught there until uh, 2014 when I retired, and I'm now serving as a a senior professor. Right. I'm married, have three children, six grandchildren. Wonderful. Uh, And what what topic do you teach? You teach? Church history. Church history? Church history and historical theology. Okay. Um, Now, I, I... I knew you taught historical theology, so I was just wondering uh, if you could explain what historical theology is all about. Yeah, well, historical theology is a study of how the present doctrines that we have sort of in a formulated confessional stance that began to be matured and and developed all of the different parameters and details that 
formed the basic confessional, mature confessional reformed reformation of uh, confessions. Mm-hmm. How did those doctrines develop? How, how did it develop within the patristic period? How did it develop then within the conciliar period? What was Arianism? What is Athanasianism? What is the importance of Chalcedon? What is the importance of the development of sacramental system during the Middle Ages? Uh, what is the importance of the Reformation and how did doctrine change there? How did the doctrine of justification become discovered and how did the reformers develop their very precise understanding of the elements of justification? How does Protestantism differ from Catholicism? What is the Council of Trent? So it just there, there is a, a sort of a, a chronological way in which uh, that is done, but then there, there's also, you can study historical theology from the standpoint of how these doctrines were in any particular period. Okay. Uh, sort of those, a, a synchronic, what may be called a synchronic uh, development. So you, and so, what we're all, so you can either look at the, the uh, development of thought in general throughout the ages, or you can look mm-hmm. at the development of a particular idea across the That's ages. right. Yeah. 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 And then, then, of course, there's always room for growth. We don't think that we have we've settled everything or exhausted all, all that Scripture says, and so uh, every people develop little nuances of the way they would do uh, theology in certain instances. But I think that we can have pretty clear confidence that uh, the the latest Reformed confessions actually present a mature understanding of of what the Bible says about all most of the vital areas of theology. Uh, if the Lord tarries for, say, two or three hundred years, um, what do you think people will be studying from our era in terms of things that have been developed or doctrines that had to be made more robust? Well, I guess it depends on what we, if we're talking about two or three hundred years more, then one of the, they'll, they'll take it sort of like a century at a time and what we would see would be the development of of liberalism at the end of the 19th century. We would see the conservative uh, response to that, which developed uh, a broad spectrum of responses, some that would be called fundamentalist, uh, others that would share those doctrines of fundamentalism, but would be more sort of expansive in a reformed explanation in, 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 in response to higher critical theories and to the way liberalism treated these things. Then we would look at the development of neo-orthodoxy, which is an attempt to escape liberalism, affirm uh, the historic confessional doctrines, but without buying into everything that historic reform people would say about divine revelation, its infallible infallible, uh, character, uh, and they would be more open to some elements, perhaps, of universalism uh, than the reform tradition is what what sort of people uh, and would I fall think into also, that camp? I, what's that? What sort of people would fall into that camp? Universalism. Well, I think Karl Barth. Okay, uh, would okay. be one. Probably, uh, their element. Uh, Emil Bruner would would have sympathy with some aspects of that. And then I think we'll also look at how modern. We, we, we have the development of liberation theology. That's, that's one idea that came out of the influence of, of Marxism on theology. And 
when Marxism was failing as a purely political revolutionary movement and people who were Marxists and believed that the basic idea of the oppressed and the oppressor and seeking to achieve some kind of a, of a classless society. And uh, they, they began to say that what we've got to use is existing institutions. And so they began to infiltrate theology. And so, mm. so Catholicism, a branch of Catholicism bought into that, especially in South America, and they began to, to develop liberation theology. And now, now we're seeing this same movement into some elements of Protestantism through critical, a, a variety of critical theories. And depending on where you are, those critical theories can influence theology in different ways, like critical legal theory can influence theology where there appears to be a, um, an, an abundance of one class that is always in the cr in crime and convicted and so forth. And so critical legal theory tries to achieve a balance. And, they, and, and so they speak about justice. And of course, justice is a wonderful word for Christian theology and their Christian denominations that sort of buy into that, that particular kind of critical theory. Then there are other critical theories also. Uh, in America, of course, critical race theory is very important because of the background that we had with, with uh, slavery and, uh, and then uh, the slow movement out of genuine uh, racist attitudes that existed. So critical race theory focuses on that and says that, that all of America and all of, of Protestantism in America is infiltrated uh, systemically with, with racism. And so there is an effort to re-explain American uh, politics and, America, and, and theology and Protestantism in terms of that. So that is, that's set up a contest between those who may agree with certain aspects of the analysis that uh, we have a poor history of racism, but the answers and the, and the particular secularism and, and uh, almost an atheism that is bound up in the analysis of the formal theories is something that, of course, can't be embraced. And so I think that we're going to uh, have an opportunity in further decades to investigate exactly how critical theory uh, impacted theology mm. in, in America. Because we, we see what it did in, uh, in, in South America with uh, liberation theology. And I think that's an interesting one because, uh, I guess, looking on at what, what seems to be happening in, in the church and in the world today, it's not like it's abundantly clear that there's an, that where the attacks are coming from and where the lines are to be drawn. Is, is that the case always going back throughout history that it's, it was difficult for the, the men and women dealing with uh, heresies and, and errors that were coming up identify what what was happening and how did they no. how did they work it out now that's an that's an excellent observation that's behind that question um, yeah I mean I, I think it take the the development of Orthodox Christology of course started with the objections to Gnosticism in the New Testament mm -hmm. and then a more formalized Gnosticism came up during the time of of, of Tertullian and others, and that led to certain Christological developments. Uh, and then by the time you get to the fourth century, you have these denials of the deity of Christ that come up in Arianism because of the idea of the impossibility rationally of there being 
one God and three persons in this one God having the same essence. And so there are different explanations. Well, the three persons have similar essence, but not the same essence. So the three persons have different essence. Jesus is a created being that God has endued with, with all power subject to him. So Jesus is the creator and so forth. And, and, and God has said it's okay to worship him, <laughs> though, though he's a creature. And so it takes a while to work that out and say, well, that's just idolatry. That's just disobeying the the commandments. And so from 325, essentially to like 451, that's 125 years. It takes to sort out all of the different options that that come in until Calcedon finally has a, a, a thoroughgoing, simple statement that takes into account the heresies and the and the uh, answers that were given to those heresies and puts it into one symbol. So that's a 125-year period on something as as fundamental and basic as who is Jesus. Yeah. Uh, so should, then should have been easy, in, right? <laughs> that's right. Yeah. And Come so on, the sacramental guys. system, it, you know, the sacramental system develops over uh, 700 years. Uh, in, in the Middle Ages, until finally you get to Thomas Aquinas and the in the scholastics, and they give the definitions and they settle on seven sacraments and and so forth. Uh, and the final definitions are not actually given to the Council of Trent in the 1500s. And so you've got a you've got hundreds of years of development of the sacramental system, mm-hmm. and then the uh, the Protestant Reformation has to sort of deconstruct that, and it takes a while to work through all of that history of theology and how, how the councils were affirming certain doctrines and affirming pilgrimages and affirming penance and uh, affirming all of these things. And so you have to work through all the con- conciliar affirmations of things. You have to do new biblical exposition without saying that the councils are authoritative or the Pope is authoritative. You have to establish the, the principle of sola scriptura and defend that. And then you have to develop methods of doing really good exposition and then how you synthesize that exposition into, into doctrines. And so we have the, the Protestant Reformation sort of beginning with, the, in one sense, with Wycliffe and Huss, but then uh, uh, really that, that's a sola scriptura thing coming out and some rejection of sacraments. But, but Luther b- beginning uh, the real deconstruction of the sacramental system with his, t- his attack upon uh, the selling of indulgences in the, the 95 Theses, and then through the various councils developing the doctrine of justification uh, and, and, and the doctrine of the church. You have different doctrines of the church that come up in different ones of, of the Reformation and, uh, so, and then different views of divine sovereignty and, and, and depravity. And so, so that you don't have the... Uh, for example, not you don't have until 1618 the Synod of Dort, and so that's a full hundred years uh, after Luther, uh, and and in there it was between two different kinds of Protestantism, and Lutheranism has its own confessions and it and, and its agreement with the Reformed confessions in many areas, but disagreement then and still now uh, in in other areas. Mm. So I think that we're going to be working on this for a long time. Yep. Uh, and uh, we have to find all the important common ground that we have to, to work together without, without forgetting that all truth is important. Mm. So we can't just drop all of our polemics and say we're just going to agree, agree to get along. We have to do polemics in a fraternal way. 
and while agreeing on those central issues and joining together on things where we see that the root of the faith is under attack. That's fascinating. So what you're really saying is it's really messy. <laughs> it is. It is. There's nothing unexciting about being a theologian yep. or teaching in seminary. I mean, I, Margaret and I had a, had a friend who was a doctor and when we were first in seminary, and then they went off and he, he established a practice. He was in the Air Force. He established a practice. They came to that, back to visit us after I started teaching at Southwestern. We had picked him up at the airport, and so he uh, Marilyn, the the the, the, uh, the wife of the doctor, said, "So, h- how do you like seminary teaching?" I said, "Oh, I love it. I love to go to class every day and stuff." And she said, "You know, but I thought you'd be doing something exciting." <laughs> and I, so I said, "Well, I tell you, it's pretty exciting. Every day you go in, and these students have challenging questions. They disagree yeah. with you on certain things. You have colleagues and peers that teach different." different things and you talk in the teacher's lounge about it and some of them rise to the level of, of real serious theological issues. Some are just friendly, fraternal discussions. I said there's there's never a day where it's not you don't you don't feel the weight of something really almost gravely important developing. Oh, so yeah, it, it's messy and, and it's important. Um, now, you have written this book recently, The Child is the Father of the Man, um, on Spurgeon. And uh, it's not the only book you've written on Spurgeon. You've also uh, got a, a larger volume uh, called Living by Revealed Truth. I think we've got one behind us here. Uh-huh. Um, so you've, you've clearly done a lot of work on Spurgeon. How did your interest in, in Spurgeon develop? Well, when you teach through the history of the church, you know, and you, you come to the English Reformation and, and things that follow, and then how Baptist life arose out of that, and then you get into controversies. And one of the things you always deal with is the downgrade right. yep. controversy, because that was that was when liberalism began to come into, particularly into Baptist life. It had already been in congregational life. It was beginning to seep into Anglican life. But then it came into Baptist life, and Spurgeon was a member of the Baptist Union, and he reached a point where he thought it was so far gone that he resigned. In 1887, he resigned from the Baptist Union uh, over an article he had written called, the, or that a friend of his has written, and he published in the Sword and Travel called The, Down, the Downgrade. And so Spurgeon was deeply involved in that. And so when you teach through the history of the church, you just you come to that, you read those articles, you try to summarize it. And his stance in that was something that seemed to be so important to me, particularly since we were beginning to go through the same thing in Southern Baptist life. Huh. So I just began to read a lot of what Spurgeon said during those, those years, and then my interest expanded into other sermons and saw that he was involved in other controversies. Uh, also, the baptismal regeneration controversy that mm-hmm. uh, where he preached against the uh, article in the 39 articles and accused the evangelicals in the Anglican church of being compromisers and saying they should get out. And of course that caused a big explosion in the evangelical uh, union, but Spurgeon was not afraid to take on what he thought was vital. He just thought that any kind of baptismal regeneration was a direct uh, confrontation with the gospel. So, so uh, I just became fascinated with Spurgeon as a person who basically was self-trained, yeah. who, who read just all the time and had a tremendously keen mind and a vivid way of expressing himself and endlessly creative. Uh, and he started publishing sermons when he was 19 years old, and 
he always said, it is very hard for me to preach one sermon twice because the week I preach it, it's published. And so, so if I <laughs> preach it again somewhere, they'll say, Hey, he's already published. He's already preached already, that sermon. already read that one. <laughs> so it, it kept him on his toes. It just made him continue to produce uh, and produce. And then he had the pastor's college and well, all, and, and all these different benevolences that came out of his, his church. And so he just became a fascinating person for me. Mm. And then Christian focus asked me to write a, a book on Spurgeon. It was going to be a short one, but the more I got into it, the more I just found out things I couldn't leave out. And so they were, they were kind. They didn't ask me to cut it down. They, they, they accepted all of it. And I became convinced that uh, the theme of Spurgeon's life was a, a line. He said three or four times, he says, I want everyone to live by revealed truth, mm. uh, absorbing into the life, everything that the revealed word of God says. So I decided to call it Living by Revealed Truth, the life and pastoral theology of Charles Spurgeon. Well, Christian Focus didn't give up. They said, well, we still want you to write a short one. <laughs> so so this, this, this one, The Child is Father of the Man, is the short yep. one. But it's not exactly a biography. It has, it's punctuated with biographical data all the way through. But it's mainly about... Uh, convictions that Spurgeon had developed very early in his life uh, became convictions. And I traced out how these convictions developed throughout his life. So he loved Wordsworth, and the title for the book is from a Wordsworth mm. poem, My Heart Leaps Up When I Behold a Rainbow in the Sky. And he has this line in it where he talks about how he, when he was young, he had these convictions, and he says that if he ever changes, he says, I, let me die. The child is father of the man. Huh. And then he talks about how virtue develops and continues. Yep. Well, Spurgeon loved Wordsworth, and, and he, he reviewed some of his things. Of course, he didn't agree with him. He didn't agree with his type of Christianity. But the thing that Spurgeon loved about Wordsworth was uh, Wordsworth had this instinct that there were truths and virtues embedded within nature that should be sorted out, that should inform our emotions and inform our viewpoints. And Spurgeon was just really into that. He loved to bring illustrations from, uh, from nature, uh, both for virtue and for uh, sinfulness. I just, Morgan and I are reading again uh, the uh, morning and evening, and I think yesterday it was, he, he was Take it, took a little scripture out of Isaiah, they spin spiders' webs. And so he began to talk about what that means, what the spider is, how flimsy the web is, and yet how many people, how many things get caught in it. He spins it out of his own body. He says the honeycomb, the honeybee takes nectar from the flower, and that's the way he produces, but the 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 uh the spider produces these things out of his his own body, and it's very fragile. It will be swept away, but there's so many things that get caught in it. And so he is talking about bewaring of heresy, beware of of the different vices that can bring you down. And it's just these observations, almost like a Jonathan Edwards kind of yep, observation yep. Of, the, of, the, of the spider. Uh, and, and he'll do things like seeing a wall that where there is some sort of hydraulic pressure coming up and the wall is always weeping. It's just, it's a, a wall built out of stone and it's always yeah. damp, it's always yeah. weeping. And, and he makes uh, observations, draws spiritual lessons from that. And and so it, he he loved that kind of thing, but of course he believed that it was 
because the God has set his glory within nature, but also the world is now cursed. And so you can see the theology both of God's, of God's glory and what we should know about God from nature, but you also see how we have perverted things and how nature has been corrupted by the fall. Uh, of course, that never superseded his, his understanding of, uh, and, and the, the, the preeminence of divine revelation through Scripture. But he found nature to be very supportive of that. Yeah, I mean, when, uh, anyway, I just thought that little phrase, the child is father of the man, would, would pick up this idea of early convictions and how they develop all the way through into his manhood. Yeah, um, and, it, and there, it was very eye-opening for me. I, I found it a very helpful book in terms of um, seeing, I guess, some of the, the core aspects of what makes a man like that. Um, and uh, one, of, I guess there's, there's sort of two main things that I saw. One was his uh, doctrinal solidity, if you like, the fact that he just was so, like you say, so well-read um, and, and so solid in his theology, even from an yeah. early age. Um, and the second is that he managed to express that so simply to people. Yeah, that is amazing, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, you should read his sermons, and you, and if you, the person who is deep in theology and knows confessional history and all that can see what Spurgeon's doing. They say, oh, he's talking about the covenant of redemption here. Mm. Of course, he wasn't shy about that. He just spoke openly about that. But there are other things you can say, oh, he's, he's dealing with this here. But the, uh, the, the way he makes it so plain to these people south of the Thames there in London, it's just amazing. Mm. And yet, and also, you know, he prided himself on being a plain speaker for the people. Mm. But also, you recognize that he is a poet. Uh, oh, I mean, yeah. every sermon is just filled with these images and with uh, almost, it's almost like par aphorisms. You can read a paragraph and every sentence is just a little turgid truth uh, in <laughs> itself. Exactly. And yet, and yet they tie together. There's no, there's no lack of coherence, yep. but you could just take one sentence out of it and say, man, that's, that's really a good sentence. That's exactly right. So I, it's always struck me when I've read any of uh, Spurgeon's material is that every single line is an illustration of some sort, either with the use of a word or the, or a picture or it's, some, yeah, he doesn't go on long illustrations like yeah. a lot of modern t preachers do, and they tell this long story, and then they'll draw a little simple conclusion at the end. Now, his are images. He, he may have two or three lines and refer to a particular person or a poem or just an, an image. I mean, just some of the images, I don't know how he comes up with, with all of them, but there was one that he uh, used. He was saying it's... Uh, some some people listen to sermons like oil gliding across marble. Nothing ever penetrates. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, who would who would think about something like that? <laughs> oil gliding across marble. Nothing ever penetrates. All right. So let let's talk about because um, I, I think we'll go on forever if we if we don't keep moving. But uh, no. it. Spurgeon and books. So you said he's self-studied. Um, he, he never went to seminary. I, I heard somewhere recently he had an, a library of over 5,000 volumes. Um, and couple that with your, your concept of the, the child being father of the man. How did reading 
particularly at that at that early age um, and throughout his whole life, how did that fit in with with Spurgeon's development and and the way that he thought? Yeah. Because he certainly didn't stay, he wasn't static. He didn't just stay at, at one level of maturity. He's constantly growing as a result of the things that he's reading. But he has such a profound grasp of what he thinks are the basic elements of orthodoxy very early in his life that what he does is he's not radically changed, but he, he grows. Mm. Uh, and he expands the way in which he can apply certain doctrines and the importance of them for the overall uh, coherence of, of theology. Uh, but... I think this became because of his love for Pilgrim's Progress. Okay. Uh, when he lived with his grandfather, he would often go into that room that was, he said it was dark because they had plastered over all the windows because it was a tax on windows. <laughs> and, and so people would cover up their windows so they wouldn't be taxed as much. <laughs> and Virgin was, was just very perplexed about that. He said, who in the world thinks they have right to tax the light? And so... <laughs> <laughs> but he would go in there and he would look at all those books. And he said they went, they were like the martyrs going about in sheepskins and goatskins. He loved the texture. He loved the smell of them. Uh, and so he became acquainted with these names of the Puritans. And there was, it was a, basically a library of, of all the Puritan writers. Mm. And that was a love he had all of his life. He knew the Puritans probably better than, Maybe Joel Beakey knows the Puritans better than Spurgeon <laughs> did, but he's be the only one. <laughs> but uh, but all those those doctrinal issues that come up in Pilgrim's Progress, he learned, and and the ways in which those doctrines can be attacked, he learned. But at one point in his life, he had read Pilgrim's Progress for a hundred times, mm. uh, and I'm sure he read it many more times. His sermons are filled with it. So I think that his basic organization of orthodoxy came from Bunyan. Right. And, and, and the images that Bunyan uses as Christian is on that pilgrimage. And then, of course, there's, there's added sort of delight to it when, pilgrims, uh, when Christian's wife begins to come along with, with her children. And so that, that forms the basic framework of the way Spurgeon viewed what theology was and how theology should be handled. And so then as he continued to read, it just expanded the way his understanding of certain elements. I, I found something the other day. I was reading John Flavel, uh, and uh, Flavel is talking about the covenant of redemption, and he sets up this dialogue within the Trinity. The Father says this, I pledge to do so-and-so, I, I will give a people to you, I will support you, et cetera, et cetera, and I will receive your sacrifice. And the Son says, I will accept your assignment. And of course, Spurgeon says, we know this conversation didn't take place like this, but this, is, this, is, this helps us envision how clear the persons of the Trinity were. Uh, and that, of course, and Flavel was doing that, and then Spurgeon does that. Spurgeon will take that, that, sort of, that same sort of thing so he's, he easily borrows uh, ideas that he thinks are good, and he's constantly informing himself uh, through his reading as to how to make this theology plain and how to apply it. Mm. Um, I think also Whitfield was very influential upon him early in his life. He, he, Whitfield was reformed, but Whitfield pled with people to repent of sin and to come to Christ and assuring them if they came that Christ would receive them. And so he, he very early began to do this synthesis between the doctrines of grace, on the one hand, the absolute divine sovereignty, 
and the abiding responsibility of sinners to repent and the obligation of the evangelist to uh, plead with people to be reconciled with God. And he saw Whitfield as sort of the best model of that. Spurgeon also read a lot of Edwards, and so Edwards was not quite the the uh, the pulpiteer that Whitfield was, but uh, obviously tremendously thoughtful and evangelistic. And I think it's from Whitfield and and Edwards that that Spurgeon found these ways of dealing straightforward with the doctrines of grace, uh, and yet and still applying them without without compromising them, applying them in an evangelistic way. I've read mm-hmm. sermons by Spurgeon on limited atonement, where I mean there's just no holes barred in what he says and how he deals with it and the father's determination to save all for whom the son has died and and so forth. And then he'll come in with uh, this evangelistic uh, appeal at the end. It's just marvelous. And and it's like people, most people think you can't do that. But but Spurgeon does it without saying, okay, I'm going to be Arminian now and do this. In fact, he, he just hates that idea that, that you can't that you have to slip off into error to be evangelistic. He said if you can't be evangelistic with with the truth, then you don't really understand the truth. Mm. Uh, and and so uh, from a popular standpoint, I think it was it was Edwards and Whitfield that sort of trained Spurgeon in that. But but I mean he he took it to a level and to a uh, a kind of uh, art form that was amazing. I mean, Whitfield would go, would go, and Whitfield would isolate his his audience into all different kind of segments. He say, "You young men do so, so you old men do this, you you uh, you you poor people in bondage, you slaves, uh, Jesus will receive you too. You you masters, you need to realize that you need to repent of some of your treatment, and you need Christ too. And you you he would go through the whole spectrum. Well, that's what Spurgeon does. Mm. Spurgeon will will. There's a sermon he's called he's. <laughs> God called compel them to come in. And so he he talks about the effectual calling, how God compels them and all of this. He says, but but then I must compel you. He says, my assignment is not yet through when I'm talking about compulsion and how you are compelled. He said, I'm commanded to compel them to come in. And so he goes into that and, and does all those different groups that are in his, in his auditory, uh, pleading with them on the basis of the doctrine that he's preached to come to Christ with the confidence that he'll receive them. That's, and that's, that if they feel like they want to come, they are being called. Yeah. So that's fascinating. You, you, you're saying that by just reading um, so widely and, and so much, he was pulling, he was not, not just being shaped doctrinally, but he was also pulling ideas, ways of life, illustrations, and then going and applying that in the way that he yeah. lived. Yeah, principles of communication. Yeah. He would read and he would see, okay, this is, boy, this is a great way to communicate. This is a great way to, to make this doctrine just sort of come alive in the, mm. in the perceptions that a person has that they are, they are standing before God who is going to be their judge. It's appointed that a man wants to die and after that the judgment. While they're alive, there's still the opportunity for them to mm. perceive the truth and receive it. And so... So he's looking for those things. It's doctrine, it's synthesis of doctrine, it's images, it's illustrations, and it's a manner of communication that he's constantly picking up. He has some sections where he, he would talk about uh, 
the things that each of the Puritans, uh, each of them was strong at. Uh, you know, Burroughs does this and Flavel does this and, and so forth. And he'll, just he'll just talk about, well. yeah, yeah. And it's, I, I just, fascinating. it's just like, he's just, it's just right there. He's dealt yeah. with them so, so much. So I, I have so many other things I'd love to talk about, but we're, we're going to have to wrap up in a, in a minute. So just lastly, um, if people were wanting to start reading some Spurgeon, where would you recommend they start? Well, one of the best things is just if you want just little bits and pieces that you can share with your family, get Spurgeon's morning and evening. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's fascinating. It's doctrinal. It's short. It's applicatory. It's got all the strength of Spurgeon's images. Uh, and then just start selecting uh, sermons. Each sermon is about 12 pages. And, and they're, as we've been talking about, they're a doctrinal and applicatory feast. And then for just to see how um, how observant he is about everything, uh, John Plowman's talks. Ah, yes. Uh, he says he got that from a, there was a guy that they said had crip sayings uh, in Stamborn when he lived with his grandfather. And this guy's name was Will Richardson. And he would go out walking with Will Richardson, hearing all his crip sayings. <laughs> And then also his grandfather had a lot of these sayings. So he, he learned how to summarize all of these little ideas. And, and so John Plowman's talks, I think, would be a really good way to just find the richness of Spurgeon's observations and getting theological truth. Uh, and then I think every, every minister of the gospel should read lectures to my students. Mm-hmm. Deals with every aspect of, of the... Uh, of pastoral ministry from the minister's own life to evangelism, to exposition, to illustrations, to uh, hard work in the study and uh, all of those kinds of, of things. And then very practical ideas about how to preach, you know, how to, how to pronounce your words and how to, how to use your gestures and, and all of that. I mean, he wasn't just, it doesn't matter what you are, just be natural and the Holy Spirit will use you. Well, he wants you to be natural. He doesn't want you to become pompous and, and try to do something unnatural. But he says, he says everyone's gifts and everyone's provenance can be trained uh, to be effective in communication. And every, every minister should see that as a stewardship that they, that they have. So, so, yeah, lectures to my students is a, another one. There's, there's yeah, some, so those, that's a good place to start. Yeah, there's some great recommendations. Thanks very much, Tom. Uh, and that's all we have time for today, unfortunately. Okay. Uh, I have about a half a dozen other things I'd love to talk about, but uh, we're just out of time. Um, so thank you very much for joining us, Dr. Tom. Well, thank you for inviting me, and thank you for having a word to say about uh, the child as father of the man. And you've been listening to the Reformers Bookcast Uh, You can tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure you subscribe and we'll see you next week.